forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to the fourth class in our series on how to pray the Lord's Prayer. And today, if you're watching the video, you'll see that I've brought you somewhere different, somewhere very special to me, possibly the most significant place connected with prayer in my life so far. Let me explain. So I'm down in Kent because as some of you may know, I've been helping my mother and father. My father was in hospital and now is home. My mother was taken into hospital today on the day of recording. We'll see what goes on there. But that's why I'm in Kent. I've been here for a few days helping my parents. And I thought, as I was thinking about this class on prayer, I should bring you, before I teach this particular class today, to the place that has perhaps the greatest significance regarding prayer in my life, at least so far. So where am I? We are at a place locally known as the Devil's Kneading Trough in Wye, in Kent. Let me just show you the Weald of Kent laid out before us. It's beautiful here. Incredible view. You can see as far as the channel. It's gorgeous up here. I've been up here many, many times. But what I want to tell you about is a time I came up here 36 years ago. 36 years ago, I was part of a local sort of Bible study group called the Twenties Group, a pan-denominational group of people from the Congregational Church, the Baptist, the Methodist, and a few others. And we used to meet now and again to talk about the Bible and to pray together. And I was seeking a better relationship with God. I knew there was something more than I had. Penny and I were engaged at this point and we were seeking God's will for our lives and wanting to know God better. And sensed, I sensed that I needed some people in my life to teach me how to be a man of faith. What, is it, what did it really mean? I was about 23 years old. And I came up here with the 20s group as a final farewell to me. I think we had a picnic up here in the evening on the hill. And we prayed together and it was evening and we looked up to the sky and it was a beautiful indigo evening that you get in the summer. It was August that year, 1984. And, and we prayed. Stars were out. I, I just prayed to the God of the universe that I knew God was real. I knew he was majestic and powerful, but I needed his guidance. And so as I sat on the grass, let me show you, my friends and I, sat or laid on our backs on this patch of grass, praying, asking God to give me wisdom, to help me as I moved up to London, to find men of faith, people of faith, who could teach me what it really meant to be a Christian. And I looked up at the sky, and I looked out at this view, and I knew there was a God. But where was he? And how would he teach me? And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and asked God, please God, help me. I need you. I need you to help me. I moved to London a week later. I moved into a house filled with men from the Central London Church of Christ as it was then. I went to church with Chris McGrath and others. I met Douglas Arthur, all of this through Julie D'Souza. And I started to study the Bible and then I realized I realized that God had answered the prayer that I had prayed on this very spot. And I learned from Doug, well, really from God's word, of course, what it meant to be a man of faith. 
And so this is a place of pilgrimage for me, a place where I come back every now and again to remind myself that God does answer prayer. And even as we finish this series, I would hope that as we look at the points from today's closing parts of the Lord's Prayer, that we would ourselves not just understand some things theologically or theoretically, but realize that this is, this is a prayer about a God who loves us, who wants intimacy with us, and who will answer our prayers. Well, with that said, let's get on with today's class. So welcome to my parents' garden. Now let's talk about the Lord's Prayer, this last part about our sins and about the evil one. What are we dealing with here? Let's dig in. Now, a reminder that when Jesus gave us this prayer, he wasn't telling us the exact words to pray. He was saying, this is how you should pray. Not these are the words you should pray. This is how. Quite a significant distinction because he's talking there about themes, not just specific words. We are, I think now, when we're talking about sins, looking back to the Beatitudes, as much of the prayer does, particularly Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who are forgiving of others must therefore also be characterized as merciful. And doesn't the world need merciful people? And this is one of the reasons we need to pray this, this prayer, to make sure that we remain merciful we remain those kinds of people who will forgive rather than store up bitterness. But more on that as we go into this. Now, first phrase, forgive us our debts. What's going on here? Interesting word, debt. Well, the Jewish teaching regarded sins as debts towards God, so that's why the word is used. And it's the same Aramaic word, the same Aramaic word can be used for debt or for sin. So when we read debt, we also are reading sin in this context. So what are we praying for when we're praying and asking God for forgiveness. Haven't we been forgiven if we are Christians? Yes, but what are we praying for? I think partly what we're doing is we're praying for honesty, for soberness, for a willingness to say, you know what, God, I want to remember that I still need you, that I need your forgiveness, and that this is something that you gladly give, but that I don't truly deserve in my nature because I am a rebellious person. So partly it's about personal honesty. First uh, John chapter 1 verses 8 to 10, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah to that. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, his word is not in us. So when I'm asking God for forgiveness, I'm, I'm offering my spiritual nakedness to him as a, a sense of faithful surrender. God, I really need you. I can't save myself. I need to remind myself that my salvation is not in my hands. It is in God's hands. And that's a healthy place to be. It keeps me humble and keeps me grateful for what God is doing by continuing to forgive my sins. As it says, as Frederick Buchner said, to confess your sins to God is not to tell him anything he doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the bridge. So we confess our sins, they become the bridge, we acknowledge them, and then God's grace flows the other way. Uh, not an exact uh, metaphor image, but nonetheless carries the idea of healing a relationship, which I believe is what's going on here. There's also, though, I think a corporate sense here of asking God to forgive our sins, because you remember the whole prayer is not only personal, but corporate. Our Father, and give us our daily bread, and here, forgive us 
our debts, our sins. So what's going on? Well, of course, you'll remember that Israel was often held culpable and responsible as a nation for its sins. And even the sins of individuals affected the group. And that's still true today, isn't it? That our personal sins affect the group. And if you like, the group's sins affect the individual and indeed can affect the situation around us. And so at times it's important for any faith community, whether it's a what we would call a family group or a whole church congregation, or perhaps even a group of congregations, for us to be willing to acknowledge our own corporate sins. In other words, the sins that have become embedded, sins we haven't tackled, perhaps issues of injustice. Racism is a big topic right now, and rightly so. Well, perhaps individually we did, we haven't forget, uh, we, we need to uh, ask for forgiveness for individual sins of racism, but I wonder whether collectively also, as a congregation or congregations, we also need to think about whether we have been sufficiently humble and uh, and fighting for justice in a way that God would require us to do, given that He is that's part of His nature is justice. And are, is there a place there for corporate repentance? As it says in Amos chapter 2, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. He's holding the whole nation of Israel accountable there. So there's a corporate and a personal element to this asking for forgiveness. Now, as we also have forgiven our debtors, the second part of this phrase, the point here lies not in the time sequence, like as long as I forgive, then God will forgive me, so I need to tick that box so that he will then forgive me. I don't think that's really quite the point here, but it's more about the attitude. As in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, which follow after the prayer here, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. What's going on here? Is it quid pro quo? Not precisely. I don't think it's a, an algorithm or a formula. It's more that if we're going to ask God in his grace and willingness to forgive to forgive us, we've got to be the kind of people who willingly forgive others. It would be wrong to expect to be forgiven if we're not willing to forgive other people. It would be insincere in our prayers to ask God to forgive us when we are not willing or holding on to a lack of forgiveness to, towards other people. We need to desire other people to be forgiven just as much as we hope to be forgiven ourselves. Our heart must be for others to be forgiven by God. And indeed, that begins with those who sin against us, with us forgiving those who sinned against us. So if we have that heart, then we have the heart of God. And that's what we all want to grow into, isn't it? Not saying it's easy to forgive others, but it's part of how we develop the heart of God and express the heart of God. And also, making sure that we forgive other people, even though they may not deserve it, as we don't. In doing that, we prevent bitterness growing in our own heart and we become healers, not victims. In one sense, all of us are the victims of sins of other people. But we can't live as victims. We can't go through life as a victim. Because we're not. Because we're not victims. We're victors. We have overcome sin and death by what Christ has done for us. And therefore, we don't have to be bound by the sins of others committed against us. They may may still hurt. They may still be very real in their effects. But we don't have to be people that see ourselves as victims and passive. Instead, we can be forgivers and possibly healers.
Isn't the mission of Jesus to heal? To heal the harm done to creation? To heal the harm done to the relationship between humankind and God? To heal the harm done in relationships? Cain and Abel began it, but then it continues to this current day. And you can hear my neighbor's geese next door, but I shall carry on. Uh, isn't Jesus a healer? He was healer as in the flesh of healing people with blindness and lameness and many other things. And he was healing people's emotions. You could say even their mental health. He was a healer. And we can't heal if we don't forgive. And we can't help others be healed if we won't forgive them. So this is all part of the mission, the real holistic mission of Jesus. Remember Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what he's saying there is there's plenty of sin. There's a lot of sin. There's uh, sin increasing. And yet grace abounds all the more. There is more. There's always, whatever the level of sin is, there's always more grace. Maybe not even just a little bit more. A lot more grace. And so we need to remember this, that especially for those of us who are by nature guilty souls, there is plenty of grace for you. Plenty of grace for others, but plenty for you. Not just enough, not just enough, not maybe not quite enough, abounding grace. And so this is what we celebrate. There's plenty. There's more grace than there is sin. God delights to forgive. Let us pray to delight in forgiving others when they sin against us. That's a comfort to you and me, and it's an inspiration to motivate our forgiveness to other people. Third phrase, lead us not into temptation. What are we dealing with here? Uh, the message translation of this verse says, keep us safe from ourselves. Keep us safe from ourselves. Lead us not into temptation. Well, we have to deal with the fact that the Bible says that God does not tempt. So why would we pray this prayer if God doesn't tempt us? James chapter 1 verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So in that case, since we believe there's no contradiction between these two parts of the Bible, the tempting here must be a little bit different from the tempting being talked about in James chapter 1 verse 13. Perhaps it's a way of emphasizing an opposite. That might be part of what's going on here. Not so much we're praying, don't lead us into temptation, since God wouldn't do that, but rather help us, God, lead us away from temptation. I know myself. I am tempted towards sin. Then why not I pray to ask God and say, God, take me away from it. You know me. You know my temptations. You know how I can be easily led in towards some, some sins. Lead me away. Please, God, strengthen me and lead me away. Help me to desire to be led away from those sins. Maybe that's what's going on here and therefore will be protected and kept righteous. Parallel with ancient Jewish prayers and possibly the Aramaic wording behind this verse suggests that the first line might mean, uh, might mean let us not sin when we are tested. We will be tested and there's nothing wrong with being tested. Jesus was tested in the wilderness. We know we'll be tested so our faith will grow and that's a good thing but may I not sin in my testing, might also be part of what's going on in, uh, in this part of the prayer. The word for the Greek, the word in the Greek here, pyrasmos, can be translated testing rather than temptation. It could be translated, let us not be brought into temptation by the devil, allowing him to, to, uh, to ensnare us. If the word temptation can be taken to mean trial, 
or temptation that results in failure or in a fall, that would make even more sense, I think, in this context. Mark chapter 14, verse 38. Keep watching, Jesus said, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I don't know about you, but my spirit is often more willing than my flesh seems to be. That's when I need to pray this prayer. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Lead me away from it. Lead me to be strong in the testing so that I don't fall when I'm being tested. You'll remember that Peter did fall and he did let his Lord down after the arrest. But then he, after that, he became strong. Jesus said, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When he came back and he got restored, you could say in, at the end of John's gospel, after that, Peter was strong and he, would, he did not fall again. He learned some lessons there. Maybe he learned how to pray this prayer in a way that became meaningful to him. But then, last phrase, deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Again, what is going on here? Uh, the message translation has keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. Deliver us. Perhaps here, using that phrase, deliver us, God deliver me, deliver us, is stressing the vulnerability that we have as human beings. I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm human. I, I am vulnerable and I need to acknowledge that. I am dependent upon God. Perhaps that's what I'm saying here. I'm depending on him for help because I am weak. When we pray this prayer, deliver us, God. Deliver me from the, the evil one. We're saying, I, ha I am vulnerable and I need you, God. Perhaps it reminds us to, uh, uh, to think back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 in the Beatitudes again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm lucky when I'm poor in spirit, when I acknowledge it and recognize that though I am weak, poor in spirit, God has enough strength for me. And praying this prayer helps me remember there is enough strength there from God if I am willing to tap into it. The evil one, so deliver me from the evil one or from evil. Don't forget that you're in enemy controlled territory, as C.S. Lewis said. Enemy occupied territory, that is this world is, uh, is, is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I like that, thank you, Lewis. A great campaign of sabotage. We are fighting against the evil one on his territory. Yes, we're part of the kingdom and the kingdom will prevail, but this is still the devil's world in many ways. And so we are campaigning. What does he say here? We're on a, we're on a great campaign of sabotage. That's a fight. And if we're gonna fight, we, we're fighting an enemy and that enemy hates you and me. We need to bear that in mind. That's part, perhaps part of the reason we're praying this prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Or well, somebody said this about Revelation 12, 12. Satan may be a vanquished foe whose demise is inevitable, but the aggression of his death throes remains terrifying. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short, Revelation 12, 12. That's a quote from How to Pray by Pete Gregg. James chapter four, verse seven, message version. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud no to the devil and watch him scamper. 
So we need to take the devil seriously. He's a force of evil. We are fighting against the forces of, this, of his realm but we don't need to be terrified by him. And as we pray this prayer, Lord, deliver us from evil or from the evil one. We bear in mind that Jesus was delivered from the evil one by the power of God. After his death and burial, he was raised from the dead, which giving, gives us confidence because we know that God has conquered. The Father has conquered. In fact, Christ has conquered the grave, death, and the power of sin. So we don't need to fear him in, ultimate, in the ultimate sense, but we should fear the fact that without God being with us and strengthening us, we are vulnerable to his attacks. So that's why we pray, deliver us from evil. Well, to wrap up, many translations do have what they call the doxology at the end, um, which we don't have in most of our Bibles today because it probably wasn't part of the original text. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I would just like to say this because it does appear that it, um, the idea of having that at the end of the prayer began quite early, perhaps in the second century AD. And most likely it was given um, as, uh, as, as part of the culture because Jewish prayers often ended with something like this, modeled maybe on 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12, which says this, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. That's, a, that's wonderful, isn't it? First Chronicles 29, 11 and 12. How about tacking that on the end of your next prayer time? Finish your prayer time with that, reflecting on all these wonderful truths about God. I, I really like that. I'm going to use that tomorrow morning. <laughs> I'm going to definitely use that. Well, that wraps it up for this class and for this series on the Lord's Prayer. I hope you found it helpful. What have we looked at today? Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Forgive us our debts, our sins. Let's remember how lucky we are and let's pray this prayer in humility to, uh, to help us be reminded to be grateful for what God has done, be refreshed in that. As we forgive others, well, let's hold, not hold on to bitterness, but let's enact the heart of God towards people who may not deserve it. That's fine, but then neither do we. Let's not let bitterness, bitterness get a hold and let's show the world what God's heart is really like by forgiving those uh, that need it. Lead, not, lead us not into temptation. God, strengthen me. Strengthen me because I need to go in the opposite direction and I need your help to do that. Deliver us from the evil one. We are in a world controlled in many ways by the devil. We don't need to fear him, but we do need to resist him. And prayer is a powerful part of how we resist him. Well, questions for discussion. Something you might want to talk about is, well, what stands out to you from these two verses? What stands out to you the most? What, what hits you in the heart? What hits you in the spirit? Where, what might you want to pray about differently now that you understand more about what these verses are talking about? If you have any questions about them, then do drop me a line about this or anything to do with the Lord's Prayer. And maybe I'll do a bonus um, uh, class, a bonus video, uh, if, uh, if there are any questions that we can do a uh, tack one on the end of that. And I would suggest that you do pray these verses regularly. Perhaps not the whole prayer every day, but at least maybe these verses, these last two verses of the Lord's Prayer over the next few days, maybe the next week or so, to focus on them and to get them deeper into your heart and mind, reflecting on their truths for you in your life and your situation. 
Well, what a wonderful thing it is that our Lord gave us what's called his prayer. Where would we be without these wonderful words? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Take care and God bless.